Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen, and I'm here today with Anne-Marie Moll, who is Professor of Anthropology of the Body at the University of Amsterdam. We want to talk about her new book with the great and simple title, Eating in Theory. In this book, Anne-Marie asks how a closer look on eating can transform our ways of conceiving what it is to be a human. As we taste, chew, swallow, digest and excrete, our food changes both ourselves and our environment. By drawing on extensive fieldwork at food conferences, research labs, healthcare facilities, restaurants and her own kitchen table, The book offers possibilities to rethink central concepts in our philosophical tradition, such as being, doing, and knowing. The book is highly inspiring and very elegantly written, so I'm really happy to have the author here. Anna-Marie, welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by telling us what what brought you into anthropology? Yes. Uh, well, this is a long time ago. I was a student of medicine in, it was 76, 77, uh, not, yeah, in the 1976-1977. And I was studying medicine because I wanted to understand what a human being is. And given my secondary school background, I was easily convinced that then it was good to start at the natural science side and the biology science side. But as I was in medical school, I had the feeling that somehow I was learning a lot of facts, but I was not encouraged to think. So in my second year as a student, I also started to study philosophy. And because there I wanted to learn to think. And after a few years in medical school, I I would have gone to... um, into medical training, into training to becoming a doctor. And I thought it was too difficult to both be a doctor and think about it. So I shifted. There was some sort of escape program in medical school where one could make one's own master's program, uh, design one's own education, so to speak. And I did that and I wanted to, instead of studying medicine as in becoming a doctor, study medicine as in researching what was going on in healthcare. So I made for myself, I designed uh, uh, a sort of set of uh, programs to read anthropology, sociology, history of medicine, while at the same time doing fieldwork in healthcare. So I became a sort of amateur uh, anthropologist because I was supervised by medical doctors by general professor of general practice who was so generous as to allow me to do this uh, completely how to say this weird extracurriculum curriculum, curriculum. <laughs> uh, 
-hmm. And uh, at the same time, I also continued studying philosophy. So I, I came into this field in a slightly oblique way. And then afterwards, uh, after I had my master's, I, I took real philosophy classes, so to speak, in uh, sort of real anthropology classes and real sociology classes, but on a PhD level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was really, uh, how to say that, um, taken over by by not no longer resting on the biology and natural science science of things, but wanting to understand also that, wanting to understand medical knowledge and the way it came into being and functioned uh, in socially. So that's the story. And at the same time, by the way, uh, what I discovered was the then emerging social studies of science and technology. And uh, that was sort of the field that allowed me to, uh, where I learned a lot about how I, how one might do that. And so my anthropology has never been an anthropology of faraway places, but an anthropology turning into uh, Western modern societies. And, but in those societies, I started in healthcare settings and I later widened out from that. That's and can you remember the moment when it became clear to you that you need to write a book on eating? Well, that's a lot later um, because, uh, and, and there is not one moment. These things are gradual processes, certainly in my life. Uh, so I had written, uh, I had written a thesis uh, in the 80s on um, the, the the way healthcare in the Netherlands had shifted its terms, uh, and especially general practitioners and, and mental health care. Then I had written a book in the 90s on knowledge in the hospital and the way uh, different technologies allowed for different ways of knowing and different ways of acting. And then I had written in the new century a book on how the process of medicine is not a linear matter of one choice after the other, but is a sort of iterative tinkering process of care. So, but in that later book, in that care book, so there were all kinds of transitions between these projects. Uh, as I was writing the care book, I did field work with people with type 1 diabetes, and it struck me that the way that they talked about bodies and the way they lift bodies was metabolic, was all the time about a sort of negotiation about how much one eats, how much injection, uh, how, uh, how much insulin is needed for the amount of carbohydrates. And there was this constant negotiation between effort, uh, exercise, uh, and this was sort of a calculation from the outside that bodies without type 1 diabetes do from the inside, but it was a whole metabolic uh, body that that was practiced in those settings, or that is practiced, by the way, in those settings. And it struck me that what I read about bodies, both in philosophy and in social science literature, didn't attend very much to this metabolic way of living with one's body and was rather invested in either perceiving or moving or both and what in a medical way one one would call 
uh, neuromuscular body. So it's about the neural system and the muscular system. But that the, this whole there was a deep neglect, uh, I, th- I thought, in both philosophy and the social sciences, uh, and also actually history of, of, of Madison, of the, of the metabolic way of living and understanding body. So that's when I thought, well, if I start studying eating, um, that might really be an interference and might allow me to make a shift in this uh, in this way of understanding bodies uh, that is so dominant in philosophy and the social sciences. And am I right uh, that this called, also connects to the title of your book, Eating in Theory, in contrast to, for example, the theory of eating? Yes. Yes. So my from the start, it was not my object to uh, indeed theorize eating and to say, okay, we know, let's try to find out what eating is. But it was my object to say, well, if in as far, if we know what eating is, what does that mean for uh, the philosophical schemes or for the theoretical schemes that we use when we do all kind of other intellectual work? Indeed, eating in theory. I thought eating would, uh, good understandings of eating would really shift theoretical reflexes and theoretical repertoires. And can you offer maybe one example to start with uh, for one of these uh, shifts that maybe struck you the most? Well, I'm not going to make a hierarchy between my lovely chapters. Okay, sorry. But, but, <laughs> but I, can t I can give one example. Uh, and let me give the example of the chapter on being. Uh, if, if you have a, a body that is... Uh, if you have an understanding of a body as seeing, hearing, and moving, it's quite an achievement of the body to see, hear, and move, th for instance, through a room without bumping into tables. And uh, uh, and it's also, you can understand a body, so you can try to theorize how bodies do that and what it means and how you have to be an integral body to be able to do that. But as soon as you talk about eating, uh, it's not just one coherent integral body. You can see all kinds of differences. In eating, it's really very important that you swallow and that the food gets into the esophagus and the stomach rather than into the lungs. Because if you have food in the lungs, you get all kinds of nasty uh, diseases. You may get pneumonia, for instance, from the lungs not being able to cope with food. That's not what they're designed to cope with or what they're designed, but what they're, what they're able to cope with. So, the relation of the seeing and moving body through the world outside is very different than the way the eating body relates to the world outside. And, and this goes even further if you then go out of that room and you go and walk in the surroundings. And, and there's actually very interesting, um, good anthropological work uh, on how bodies can move through their surroundings. Uh, but, but of course, if you think about eating, it is not my body that moves through the landscape and through the surroundings. All kind of surrounding things, things that first surrounded me, move through my body. I eat the apple, uh, swallow it, partly digest it, and partly excrete it. And that's a very different relation to surroundings. And if we push that, and if we indeed take me, uh, 
not not me personally, but an, a high mother and subject living in an urban setting, it's not simply surroundings as in a circle around me. Let's say if I walk for five kilometers, I have a land around me that I walk through. It's not not very large land. But if I eat, my apple may come from France. It may come from New Zealand. And the coffee that I had this morning for with my breakfast may come from Ethiopia or Vietnam. And, and bits and pieces of those lands enter my body and then also uh, when I go when I excrete them uh, I'm attached to a sewage system that flushes out my excrements my urine and feces uh, out into the world and who knows where that ends so the the being of the human in the surroundings is very different if you think through moving and seeing than if you think through eating this this eating is a more uh, divided body and it's a more spread out body and it relates to the surroundings not by being in them but by exchanging stuff with them by transforming the matter so in Dutch you have the word that stofwisselen it's like the German word um, uh, uh, it exists in German as well in a variation which doesn't exist in English but it's really transforming stuff transforming matter and that's what it is to be eating body and that if we shift that to theory so being becomes something different it's not an entity in surroundings but it's a constant transformation incorporation ex-corporation yeah and, and one of the so there there are of course several uh, interesting aspects in 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 this but uh, one the, the first that struck me was Uh, that actually the question when the food is inside my body mm -hmm. is a very open debate. Mm -hmm. So, so the the, the uh, for me as a as a person who never deeply thought about this, mm -hmm. uh, it 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 uh, always was very clear that e either if I take the food in my mouth and chew it, or if I swallow it, then it's inside me. Mm -hmm. But You you um, point out how several uh, people working with um, people who have uh, swallowing problems have very different understandings of what counts as um, I don't know if, if that's correct, but successful intake of of food. Yeah, well, let me say. Interestingly, that is not a debate. It's okay. really it's really a, how to say that. It's not a debate in that there could be one of them winning. It's mm -hmm. really what is relevant about intake uh, for, uh, this is especially in healthcare situations, what is relevant uh, for a person in a particular situation changes what, when the food is inside, outside. Let, let me take one step back before answering that. I earlier said it was not my uh, my quest to know what eating is, but to to shift theory from eating. At the same time, of in as far as I'm trained as an anthropologist, I was not going to do, a, a, let's say, a, a cat and pipe type of example, example generating philosophy, but really studying at the same time seriously what eating is. And the only way to 
study properly what something like that is, as far as I'm concerned, is to stop knowing what it is, to, to block one's own knowledge and to really look what eating is in diverse practices without expecting a single answer. And, and really expecting that in different situations and different settings, eating is not the same, but eating is something different. Now, this really goes also for the question what when food is in the body. Indeed, you can say food is in the body when you close your mouth. Uh, and that is really relevant for, for instance, a person for whom it's difficult to put food in their mouth. If you have mm. a person with dementia, they, they, for them, it can be really difficult to do that. It's not obvious, certainly not, to pick up a fork and to move the fork to the mouth. Or also for some people with hemiplegia who, who's, who no longer have motor control, that, that mm. is difficult. So then there's the swallowing, and that, again, is, is really difficult for people who have uh, uh, neuro neurological problems so that they cannot steer their muscles properly. Uh, I, I, I did a bit of research there with people with hemiplegia who have to learn to swallow again. Uh, so, so that's a second entrance. And then uh, there, what also happens is once food is in the, in the bowels or in the stomach and in the bowels, that doesn't mean that it will also be taken up in the bloodstream uh, to for in an embryological uh, and anatomical reasoning, the whole pipe system, the esophagus, the stomach, and uh, and the bowels are still outside the body. In that they there is a clear skin and then a clear bowel lining between uh, between this pipe, so to speak, and the what in uh, what is called the internal. The milieu, the, the milieu intérieur in, in French, of the body. Uh, so the food has to to get there. Food has to pass the bowel lining. Now that's in that sense another outside-inside boundary uh, from the from bowels to across the bowel lining, being in the blood. But then, uh, and that boundary, for instance, in when I did field work with people who are really very old and on the verge of dying, that it may happen that they can still swallow, but they can no longer absorb most of the foodstuff in, in their bowels. Now you, you could think, okay, food is inside the body once it's in the bloodstream, but that's not the case either. For people who have diabetes, have the problem that there can be, say, sugar in their bloodstream, but their cells can are no longer able to uh, use that sugar because the sugar cannot cross the cell wall. So there's another wall. It's the wall of the cell. And that's another outside-inside system because food is only in the cell if in one way or another it can cross the cell uh, uh, wall. And uh, without that, uh, there is no, uh, uh, how to say it, it's not possible to uh, use sugar to burn it and to to use it to uh, uh, contract muscles and and do and do other things. So yes, there are all these insights outside, but that's not a debate because nobody who is working on any of these situations will say that the others are wrong. The others have another concern. Yeah. So so for me, the, the reading all this was was really. Uh, uh, striking <laughs> uh, first because of of course it it leads to the to to realize that 
who I am and where I end mm -hmm. or rather begin mm -hmm. is not clear at all. No. And secondly, how to conceive this line or barrier or border is, as you just said, a matter of perspective. So, No, I didn't say perspective. Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can really understand that that's what you would think, so uh, don't get me wrong. But it's not from how you look. It's from what you're doing. It's from the practice you're involved. Okay, yeah. And, and, and this is rather important to me. This is what I worked on earlier. Uh, this is the, sort of the central concern of the book I wrote about knowledge in the medical system. The dominant idea in, in Western knowledge is indeed that there is one object and you can mm -hmm. look, look, you can stand around it. Mm -hmm. And then everybody who stands around it has a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And you could say a painter sees it differently from a, from somebody who is a baker or a cook and sees it differently from uh, the teacher, etc. And they would all have a different perspective on the one object. Now, My storyline here is different, is to say, no, there is not one object everybody looks at differently. There are different practices in which an object emerges to be something different. So, like, like I said before, in a trying to get food to your mouth practice, mm -hmm. the inside of the body is the mouth. Mm -hmm. In a trying to swallow practice, mm -hmm. the inside of the body is beyond having swallowed. In a trying to absorb food practice, so to speak, where in a practice where what matters is what is the uh, is the body able to absorb across the power lining, the power lining is the boundary. So this is not one object, one boundary of the body that people have different perspectives on, but it's really different boundaries of the body that matter in different ways and, and, okay, and that are so, relevant yeah. to different practices. Yeah, and and the 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 term of perspective maybe too much emphasizes the the perceiving subject again yes. in opposition to a practice which involves all kind of things and doings and okay yeah I can I can I can see yeah, yeah. perspective is a visual metaphor huh yeah and yeah. and of course for somebody who's trying to take things from the eating side mm -hmm. uh, I'm not bound to go with visual metaphors but to really mm -hmm. think with practice practice orientations mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and the other thing thing that that uh, was interesting for me while you spoke that uh, you said that one you um, you again get rid of the stuff you've uh, eaten mm -hmm. you, you said something like uh, who knows uh, where where this goes but <laughs> actually you you do know because you did empirical research in uh, wastewater treatment mm -hmm. uh, facilities and um, this also was um, uh, very interesting for me because it it um, encouraged me to to think where am I really, <laughs> or where, where are parts of my body now in the world? <laughs> Can you maybe expand a little bit on, on this? Yes. So we just said it's not very clear where the body starts. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's in slightly different but similar ways. Not very clear where the body ends and when, it, when something is my body. So if you have a health problem and you're asked to... Uh, give some urine because they want to diagnose you 
on on stuff that is in your urine. You put your urine in a little bottle or a, a pot and your name goes on it. So then that particular urine is still you uh, because it is is uh, carrying information about you and it's considered to be you. Your name will be on it. However, if you go to a toilet in a place where there's a sewage system, you flush the toilet and you don't consider it the urine to be you. I mean, and, this, and the same goes for features. So, uh, and well, people who have studied sewage systems more extensively have pointed out before that one of the disadvantages of this whole flush system that we have is that we also no longer feel responsible for it. We no longer feel connected to what we flush out. It, it becomes invisible and, and it goes under the ground. So, okay, we went, uh, uh, I, I did this not alone, I did this with a couple of my colleagues later on more extensively. We went to uh, wastewater treatment systems. And then, uh, well, the, the different remnants of different bodies that are and are no longer those bodies uh, are together there and, and get transformed. Uh, I mean, they're all kind of sieving systems and then there are all, the bacteria that are in them are also used to uh, downgrade the organic materials there. And yeah, then stuff keeps flushing out. One of the big problems in wastewater treatment at the moment is that it was made to dissolve uh, or not to dissolve, but to break down organic materials so that you don't have algae overflow in in the water further downstream. But it has not been made to um, take out all kind of medication that is, a, is an added layer to all of this medication that people have swallowed and that of which remnants of it, of those medication they they excrete and that too gets into our waterways and to, into our systems. So yeah, my being in that sense is extended way beyond me. So I do know up to the wastewater treatment system, but not beyond that because what what flows out of there, well, it's partly traceable. I mean, the the bacteria that die in that whole system get burned and then the ashes go into the building of roads. So my body is spread partly into the underlayer of the building of roads. Uh, that's, that's indeed, we're still talking about the chapter on being. That's really a dispersed type of being. Uh, I mean, the, the image of the isolated individual that liberalism has, has a fantasy about is really very easy to, uh, to how to say that, to make that image filter and to make it, uh, to, if you wish to critique it, to critique it by, by thinking about this whole eating process and the transformation that generates a far more, an idea of a far more open, spread out, transformative body than the body within the skin. So for me, all this was very uh, striking, but I think maybe a few listeners now think, well, wh why should I care? Why should I care about where my uh, uh, parts of my body go after I flush down the toilet? Um, what would you say apart from... Or, or is was that already the answer you just gave? The, the that it is 
possible to critique or change or transform um, dominant uh, images of uh, the individual and the self or what what you what you respond to to somebody who now listens and think well the, the eating of i thought about eating quite differently than than wh where my body goes after i flush down the toilet oh now you asked three questions so uh, let me so oh, uh, apologies for uh, no, that that's okay uh, so why should you care there there are very many ways to uh, why people might want to care let's say we cannot care about everything all the time but That's true. Uh, there is a fairly direct material uh, material politics type of way to care because uh, what we flush out through our toilets uh, then enters the collective uh, ecosystem, the, the milieu around us. And in as far as it's not properly cleaned again, it poisons our surroundings, it's polluting. So these, there is this ecological concern uh, with the polluting that is generated through everything we flush out. And, and that's not just our excrements, it's also indeed our medication, but also the stuff we use to clean. Now, that's not what this particular book talks about, but it is a first reason to care. The second reason to care is indeed the one you just mentioned, uh, and that's what the book is more about. And that is that if we th if we realize that our book, uh, this of or if we have this if we take the image of the self in this and and what being is uh, if we take our cues here indeed from the spread out body we have a far more collective spread out intersecting way of what it is to be a, a human than if we have a, a liberal illusions about selves beneath the skin And this doesn't only go for uh, the material stuff of eating and excreting itself, but really what it is to be in the world. Uh, so that's another reason to care. And, uh, well, then again, I'm not p saying people should care. Uh, they they might want to think with that, and it might inspire people for, for other concerns that they themselves were having with other topics. And I, I hope it would. Um, my book is not of the kind you should care. Um, but hey, look at this. What do you think? What might this mean for you? Mm. This also connects uh, to uh, your way of doing research, which I found very uh, interestingly and uh, interesting and also uh, pro provoking and thought provoking. Uh, because the first chapter you call empirical philosophy. Mm -hmm. And to to many people, this might sound indeed as a contrast in terms. Um, but can you can you give an introduction? What do you mean by doing philosophy empirically? Yes, I can try. Uh, this is a difficult chapter. Any people can also skip that if they don't want to read it. But... Um, You can read the being chapter, which is chapter two, without re reading chapter one, but uh, and the other way around. So the idea of empirical philosophy is to it goes in several steps. The, the the crucial one is to say there is a tradition in philosophy that thought that thinking can be outside of the world. It can be above it. It can be uh, transcendental. Would be the technical term. And I'm of the line 
uh, of, of among those philosophers who say, well, no, it can't. There is always uh, thinking is always in all kind of ways part of of the rest of the world. It's it's an element. It's always uh, imminent, so to speak. And there are all kind of uh, links between philosophical uh, uh, words, terms, concepts, and the world that they emerge from and the worlds that they enter. And let me explain it through one of the the explanations I use in the chapter, the exemplary situation. I I really like that one. And uh, it was the the word... uh, the way I use the word in the book, uh, I take from Lola Nauta, who was my PhD supervisor in the 80s. And what he said is that if you read philosophers, even if they think they're transcendental, they actually always, it becomes far more easy to read them if you realize the specific empirical situation that they happen to be reflecting upon. So empirical philosophy in my books doesn't mean uh, taking reality seriously and being bound by it, but it, it means read into text what they are inspired by. One of the easy examples that uh, Nauta used was if you read Sartre on The Stranger, that may seem very abstract, but if you realize that the man was sitting in a cafe in Paris watching people walking by, suddenly his theories about The Strangers make a lot more sense. So that would be what Nauta called the exemplary situation that is embedded in the philosophy, whether the philosopher says so or not. I mean, the other famous example is that of uh, many more historians have written about this, about John Locke, uh, who was writing about what it is to own, about possession. And in the, the exemplary situation there is that he was an English gentleman owning land in what later became the United States of America. So could one own land? And there were all kinds of theories uh, in Locke about how land can only be owned if you work it in a specific agricultural way. Now, that was to disqualify uh, Native Americans who were living with the land in, in very different ways and to say, no, they cannot own it. Uh, neither would they want to, but this whole, this whole idea of ownership is based on that empirical exemplary situation. Okay, now once you recognize in all kind of other philosophers that their texts have exemplary situations hidden within them, you can start to say, but then if we make new philosophy, we can ex- we can make a bit more work of the exemplary situation that we want to think about and think with. So rather than trying to escape exemplary situations, we can play with them and work with them. And and one of my sources of inspiration there is the work of Michel Serre, who has done a lot of that. He has been using all kind of uh, images and realities that he chews on and, and works with in, in his various books. And and shifting around new empirical stories allows him to say new things. But he didn't work on eating, so I did that bit. Does that make sense? Is that clear enough, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, so you could say so it's also it's a sort of heuristic. It's a way of gaining, getting inspiration. It's, so in, in, to fall back to what we talked about earlier... 
in those empirical philosophy terms or exemplary situation terms, I say, well, uh, uh, all kind of ways in we think about being have as their implied or their implicit empirical referent a neuromuscular mm-hmm. body. So mm-hmm. if I explicitly attend to an eating body, what can I shift around? What kind of new terms and new ways of understanding terms emerge from that exercise? So it's a sort of, it's in a way a serious game. And and you you um, so for for the people who did not read it throughout the book, you present a short. Um, well, polished versions of field notes, could I say this? Mm -hmm. So um, observations and descriptions of uh, practices and uh, situations you experienced. Um, So would you say that these um, are your attempts of, so to speak, making the exemplary situations explicit? Yes, and also of generating new exemplary situations. What, what uh, do you mean by that? Well, Ge- generating, I mean. Uh, so these are not just situations I passively experienced. They are situations mm-hmm. I actively went to. I went to search. I, I went mm-hmm. out of my way to to go and generate them, to, to turn them from an event into an exemplary situation, into something to chew on and, mm-hmm. and to learn from. And they're quite diverse. So that's also what eating is does not emerge as one coherent thing from this book. Eating, just as we already talked about how eating, how the body boundaries are different in relation to different eating concerns. Eating is also something very different depending on, on practices uh, where, uh, where it matters or where you go and look for it. So yes, mm-hmm. uh, I did ethnographic fieldwork. In, in highly diverse situation. And by the way, I had a great grant for this whole project. So there were really wonderful, good junior people working with me who also did research into eating for their own concerns and their own questions. So, And we had an ongoing conversation about all this research. So I took inspiration from their research as well. And learned a lot from them about what eating can be in in all kind of empirical settings. Plus, of course, we read lots of books of yet other authors who study eating in in other settings. Uh, so, in a, a really this uh, this multiplicity of versions of eating was a way to get really diverse and rich inspiration to shift the ways of thinking around. Okay, so we we talked about the first chapters extensively, and <laughs> I am afraid we will not have time to to touch upon the the following chapters in in such a detail. But I I, I would like to offer you the, the maybe to to choose one more uh, chapters on on knowing, doing, relating. Uh, to to further uh, go go into them okay well let me let me do knowing then the, we keep the rest of the book in suspense people might actually want to read it um so so with knowing uh one of the things that i think uh, to be a bit short about that chapter that's really interesting about knowing uh, and taking eating as a case for that uh, 
traditional images of of traditional understandings, let me put it like that, of knowing, were um, were such that it was that there was a sharp division between perception and sensation, and perception was from the outside world, and sensation was from the body. And then the idea was perception could really be done through seeing and hearing, uh, while and those were called the distal senses, while uh, smelling and tasting were the proximal senses and were not really very informative about the world. And uh, touch would then be a, a sort of an intermediate between them. Now, I was reading upon uh, this uh, and and you can imagine, as somebody who was studying eating, I was particularly interested in smelling and tasting. And I was reading various people who were saying how that too could be a way of knowing the outside world. And then it struck to me that then often cases they, they were uh, presenting were cases where people were using smelling and eating indeed to perceive, oh, smelling and tasting, I'm sorry, smelling and tasting to perceive, but then they would spit out to keep their senses pure. Let's say if you do wine tasting, mm. uh, you tend to sp- one tends to spit out the wine so as to not to still be able to taste the next sip of wine of of the f- of the next glass. And what is interesting is that of course if one swallows and doesn't just taste but really swallows, the tasting trans or the, the swallowing, the eating transforms the body. And that with the wine, this is very clear. If you have three glasses of wine, you really are not going to be subtle enough to taste the fourth one. But it's also the case with meals. If I'm very hungry at the beginning of a meal, after I've had a plateful of food, I'm not so keen to have soup again, or I might just have a bit of dessert and maybe not even that, I'm no longer hungry. So the taste of what one uh, – what one tastes really changes through eating. And that then again also gives a different uh, image of what knowing could be. It's a type of knowing where the subject does not stay the same, but is transformed by the object that it knows. And the object does not stay the same either. If I eat an apple, uh, you cannot no longer know it because I have changed it. It is it's no longer visible. It is still, it's active in my body to make me perky and allow me to go for my walk. Uh, so both what the eating provides is an image where knowing is not distal, it's not staying at a distance from the object of knowing, but where knowing is transforming the object and being transformed by it. So that that's uh, a rather different way of imagining knowledge than, than the classical one, uh, where you could say that the exemplary situation in the classical one is staring at a painting, mm. uh, and you're not supposed to take out uh, your uh, your own color uh, coloring stuff and change the painting, but you stare at the painting with your hands on your back, while the image of knowing in relation to eating is... Uh, while eating, so to speak, allows us to articulate a a mode of knowing where everything transforms in the process of knowing and transforming. They they are no longer, uh, it's no longer possible to disentangle them. And would you say these two images of knowing can be in conversation with each other or can 
would you say it is possible to transfer the the knowing image from eating to the situation of uh, watching a picture? Well, I would rather say uh, what this particular book does is add, is addition. So I add right. further understandings of being knowing, doing and relating. And I'm not critiquing. I'm not saying what has been done so far is all wrong and now come me and I'm really knowing how it is, uh, how it really is. So, I mean, this this dispute model of doing theory, I really dislike. I think uh, it's what I'm trying to do here is rather add new models so that others who, who read these things can think through in the situations they want to understand or the situations they grapple with, what might be a good way of handling that, what might serve them, what might, or what the effect of different ways of understanding might be. So some situations may call for the staring mode of knowing and other situations you may think, but wait a minute, what if we think about this in a transformative mode of knowing? So in that sense, I think the theoretical repertoires are rather like tools. And if in some cases, I mean, this is Foucauldian thought, but if in some cases you want to hammer, in other cases you want to sue, in other cases you want to paint. And I don't think we need a kind of theoretical uh, imagination where where there is only one and one mm. big truth. It's a, it's, that's a very... Uh, sad uh, mono mono idea uh, and rather than having such a mono philosophy I think it's far more interesting to have rich repertoires and lots of them that and uh, the ability to move between them and to play with them but do we need uh, one I and mean, that's that's an open question uh, do we need one that tells us how um, hammering and suing hangs together or rather when to hammer or when to sue? Uh, do you need that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> It's a question I wrestle with a lot. <laughs> I, I don't particularly like uh, philosophical theories that are affirmative and tell me what to do or, and I don't want to write theory that tells other people what to do mm -hmm. and i don't think that kind of normative repertoire where the normative takes on the shape of this is how it should be done mm -hmm. uh, i don't think that's very helpful uh, because situations are always more specific and it it's far more um how to say that i, I like the inspiration over the rule and uh and a sort of versality over uh, standards mm. In, mm. When, it, when it comes to theorizing and when it comes to doing writing books or, or thinking about the world, because that kind of false handholds, well, I already say false handholds. Handholds tend to be false because you always have to look at the specificity of a situation and it's always ri richer than what somebody from a distance could tell you you should do. Yeah, right. Maybe I'm I'm too much an educationalist for for letting go the normativity altogether, <laughs> because of course I I mean I constantly ask my um I, I don't want to talk too much about my yeah. own questions, but <laughs> but yeah. they, they they are there. Uh, I mean, the, 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 pe people tend to want 
something from theory that offers a kind of handhold. So, yeah, many people do it. So they have yeah. been taught theory is. But mm, yeah. uh, maybe growing up is not needing that. Mm. Mm. And maybe uh, if you think about inspiration rather than handholds, that things become more interesting, huh? Yeah, of course, handholds can be also very inspiring. And the other way around, you can be inspired without handholds. Yeah. But yeah, 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 I can, I can see where you're going. <laughs> okay, Annemarie, we've taken up a lot of your time. So my, my last question is, what are you currently working on? Yeah, I'm currently, I have moved on from eating to cleaning. Oh. Um, and I'm working on the question, what is clean and how are various versions of clean done in practices? Uh, for, and for instance, to, to give a small example, last year when uh, the, the COVID uh, epidemic or pandemic was starting to rage, uh, we were very concerned. I, I'm working on this with others about the way that hygienic clean is really celebrated everywhere and everybody was using face mm -hmm. face masks, throwaway face masks and all kind of nasty stuff to clean their hands. And the so that the hygienic clean was celebrated, but pollution was generated. So the world is, has been made a lot more unclean in terms of the huge amounts of plastic and uh and alcohol and other uh, nasty stuff that has been thrown out into the world. And pollution is, of course, a long-term uncleanliness mm. uh, that um, uh, that is, how to say this, that suffers so, or, or that is generated to celebrate hygienic cleanliness. So, so we're working on all these variants of clean and how they're done in different places and how they're um, undone as well. And we do that also as a case of what it is to, because again, it's empirical philosophy. Again, just like with eating, I'm not just eating and interested in eating, but this time it's not just interested in clean. It's also in the question, what is it to value? What is it to appreciate? What is it to say something good? And that aligns with this normativity question we were just right. talking about. Yeah. What are other ways of relating to goods and bads than the being normative and setting rules. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a theoretical question this time about valuing and the empirical case is that of cleaning in all kind of, again, fairly mundane settings in mundane to me, mundane in the surroundings where I live. That sounds very interesting. Uh, and it, indeed, I can see many connections uh, to questions we've talked about today. Uh, thank you very much for joining me on the New Books Network. Thank you.